Well, good morning. So good to see you. My name is Alan. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you in the lobby and make myself available to you. If you're watching online, thanks for tuning in. We're kicking off the fall with a brand new series, as you saw, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Now, EHS, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, is a discipleship course and a book that was written by a pastor out of Queens, New York, Pete Scazzaro. And I'm going to be formatting that into sermons for the next eight weeks. And uh, what that means is that I have two options. Number one, I could do all eight parts today. And you guys will be with me till about 5, 6 p.m. And you guys can go watch the Cowboys game. Anybody down for that? Yes, one. Or what we're going to do is split up all eight weeks, eight parts uh, over the next eight weeks. And so today will be an introduction to emotionally healthy spirituality, helping set the foundation for why our emotional health and our, our uh, spiritual health are tied together. So I want to invite you to come back over the next seven weeks. And Pete, before he wrote this book, here's what he found to be true after 17 years of ministry and something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And this is, sets the foundation for the next, the next eight weeks. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Now here's the thing, for us as human beings, we're made up of different parts. And there's going to be a graph on the screen that you can see that outlines the different components that make up human beings. We have our physical, our spiritual, our intellectual, our social, and our emotional. We're made up of all of these different parts. But when it comes to our deficiencies in any one of these areas, some are easier to identify than others. Let me give you an example. My son Ezra, I showed you guys, told you guys, has Down syndrome, which is an intellectual disability primarily and secondarily some physical disability as well. Now, when it comes to Ezra, I'll preface by saying this. He's amazing. He's changed my world. In our Indian culture, it's very taboo when it comes to Down syndrome. People have changed their perspective on that. He's the reason why we have a special needs ministry. He's amazing. If you've seen him, he's probably given you a hug or asked for a snack, something like that. But here's what I also know as Ezra's father and what we know as parents of Ezra, Crystal and I, is that Ezra has some deficiencies. He's twice his sister's age but is not develop developmentally at the same place that his sister is. So for those with special needs, it's easy for us to identify when you encounter them on a surface level initially to identify areas that are not typically developed. The problem, though, is that when it comes to our emotional health, it's really difficult to identify emotional unhealth when you encounter someone for the first time. Now, over time, you might have interactions, you might have conversations, you might have conflicts with someone, you might be married beyond the first year and past the honeymoon phase, and then you realize the emotional unhealth in someone's life. And so it's important for us to understand why the emotional development, our emotional development plays a role in our spirituality because they are interconnected. For some of us, we grew up in family lives where the emotional side was not developed at all. In my family life growing up, and we'll explore this over the next few weeks, growing up, we never said, I love you to one another. Uh, we never hugged one another. Uh, sometimes when I'm on the phone with my dad, there's no buys. He'll just hang up when we're done with the conversation. The emotional side was not developed, and so I carried some of that growing up as a young, uh, teen and a young adult, and even into my marriage, it's something that I've had to shift and work on. There are emotional areas of our lives that are not developed. And here's the other problem. Especially for those of us in the church world, we tend to overemphasize the spiritual side, that we never get to the emotional side. So you may have heard this term, discipleship, if you've been in church. 
If you haven't been in church, it's simply our spiritual formation. It's what we do to allow Jesus to shape who we are to the point that it affects the way that we view one another and treat one another. It's our formation as human beings as we draw closer to Jesus. And depending on your background, your experience, your passions, you might feel that there are certain areas that a church or this church needs to focus on when it comes to spiritual formation or discipleship. Let me give you some examples. There may be some of you that say, we need deeper Bible studies. That's what will change people's lives. There might be others of you that will say, no, it's all about community. We need to get people into smaller groups, and that will solve all of their problems. Some will say that change requires the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God can only take place through a robust prayer ministry. We need to schedule more prayer meetings or we won't see God move. Some will say it's a spiritual warfare issue. People aren't changing because you're not confronting the powers that work in and around them. Some will say it's worship. We need more nights of worship. We need a prayer movement, a worship movement in the city where we're soaking in God's presence. A few of you might say, well, it's all about reaching the lost, the outcast, the faceless, the homeless, those who are in need. It's about serving. If we can get our church on a serving revolution, then their lives will be changed forever. Others will say it's just grace. We need, help, we need to help people understand that it's their grace. It's the grace of God that saves them, not their performance. Pound that into their heads and people will change. And here's the thing. There's truth to every single method and approach that I mentioned. For me, growing up as a follower of Jesus, every single one of these areas have shaped who I am. And you have probably experienced how every single one of these areas have shaped you in some way shape, or form. The problem is that all of these spiritual experiences that we do in church have allowed us to assume that we are also emotionally mature human beings. There are people all across the country, all across the world, they say that they're spiritually starving. They want different sermons, deeper studies, but they don't realize that the spiritual coma that they're in is a result of emotional underdevelopment. I've experienced this in my own life. I grew up in church. Every single Sunday we went to church. I can't remember ever missing church. Even when I didn't believe, there was a moment where I didn't believe in God or didn't like church. I still went to church with my parents. I've served in churches. I've served as an intern in churches. I've uh, been part-time in church, full-time in different churches and different roles. I've gone to three different seminaries and three different ministry-related degrees. And I realized that none of this mattered when one day I was confronted by my wife about my priorities. Everybody say, uh-oh. So my wife, Crystal, a few years ago, she approached me and she said, hey, I think we need to have a conversation. She said, you're doing everything you want in life. You just started off as a 31-year-old lead pastor. you got all the degrees, people like you, all this stuff. But she said, ever since you've thrown yourself into ministry, you haven't been that kind. You've been a little bit more agitated, a little bit more frustrated a little bit more stressed out, you have more anxiety. And she said, this shift happened after you've kind of thrown yourself into this role. She said, you haven't been that good of a person to be around sometimes. And in that moment, I realized all the stuff, all my Christian and spiritual activity, all the diplomas and degrees on my wall in my office meant nothing because I assumed that the spiritual experiences that I went through develop me emotionally as a human being. And I realized that there were parts of my life that I did not allow God to meet me in. 
Many of you, if not all of you, have probably felt this at some point in your life. You go to church, you've heard the messages, but sometimes you feel stuck as a human being in your relationships or you can't shake the anger or the irritated moments, the impatience, the anxiety, the frustration. You feel emotionally empty, spiritually empty. You avoid conflict at times. You feel distant from God. You get quiet around certain people. You can't take feedback without being shattered. All of this is tied to emotional unhealth. And that's what we're going to do over the next eight weeks is discover what that looks like. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to have a theme image. And here's the image that represents emotional, unhealthy spirituality. And it's this iceberg. If you know an iceberg, you know that only 10% of an iceberg can be visible above the surface. But 90% of an iceberg lives beneath the surface. And this is what we do with our lives. 10% represents the way that we act, the decisions that we make that others can see. We're nicer people in the 10%. We're more respectful people in the 10%. We attend church, we participate, we study, we read the apps. We clean up our lives. And many parts of our lives beneath the surface in the 90% remain largely untouched by Jesus. It's only when we allow Jesus to touch the parts of our lives that are unseen that we can experience emotionally healthy spirituality. Here's what Pete Scazzaro says about this. He says this, The degree to which we are willing to give Jesus access to what is deeply beneath the surface in our lives is the degree to which we will experience freedom in him. And so over the next, weeks, next eight weeks, we're going to go beneath the surface. And some of this might make you feel a little uncomfortable. And that's because we're going beyond the 10%. To allow God to enter the hidden parts of our lives. And making this connection between emotional health and spiritual health is so transformative. It can help change the way that, that you view yourself, your marriage, your walk with Jesus, your parenting, and even for us as a church. And so we're going to look at the story of a man in the Bible in the Old Testament. He was called by God to do some amazing things. But he was one of the most emotionally underdeveloped, unhealthy leaders that we find in the Bible. And his name is King Saul. Now I'm going to summarize the story for you because it spans about six to seven chapters in the book of 1 Samuel. And what happens is that the people of God, the Israelites, they begin to form as a nation to the point where they had these enemies and other competing nations around them. And they said, all of them have kings. We want our own king. See, up until that point, God had spoken to his people through prophets. And the prophet in 1 Samuel is Samuel. And so the people demand a king. And Samuel prays to God. And God answers the people's request to give them a king. And they find a man that fits all the criteria. The writers of the Bible even put the detail in there that Saul was one of the most handsome men that you could find in all of Israel. They left that detail in there. That means he must have been a really good-looking dude. It also says that he was tall. So here's Saul on the outside. He looks the part. He's tall. He's handsome. He's chosen as king. And Samuel would anoint Saul as the king. And he would say, the spirit of God is going to come upon you, Saul, and you're going to start prophesying. In fact... Saul starts to prophesy and people say, is that Saul that's prophesying? They realize and recognize that God was at work in his life. And Paul says, uh, Samuel tells Saul that God is with you. Go and lead the people. It's this amazing way, this amazing beginning of Saul's journey as a king. And then God would use Saul to lead the Israelites to victory over many of the nations. And he was this mighty military warrior. And he would win many wars. 
But over time, you begin to see a crack in Saul's life. He begins to take some of the commandments that God had given him and alter them and make some executive decisions that went against God's original commandments. And all this came crashing down for Saul when God called Saul to take on the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites play an important role in Scripture. The Amalekites were a people group that bullied the people of God. If you go back and uh, read the story of God's people leaving Egypt and escaping slavery and Moses leads them uh, through the Red Sea, what happens is that when they reach the other side, it's the Amalekites that attack the people of God. And over and over they would bully the people of God and it had gotten to a point where the Amalekites were standing in the way of God's plan for his people and God's greater plan for humanity. And so God gives Saul a specific instruction. He tells Saul, you are to completely destroy the Amalekites. And this is how it worked in the Old Testament. And so Saul takes the Israelites and they go out into battle with the Amalekites. And again, he does not follow through on God's exact explicit command. Saul does not completely wipe them out, but he keeps the best things that they have. The plunder he keeps for himself. The fattest calves he keeps for himself and the rams. The good things that they had, he kept for himself. Now this is a big deal. Because God is trying to accomplish something to move his people forward towards his greater plan for humanity, which even involves Jesus' coming in the New Testament. And here is Saul disobeying God's commandment. And so God uses Samuel, the prophet at the time, to confront Saul. And that's where we pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 19. Samuel confronts Saul. And here's what he says. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the response that Saul had to Samuel. And we're going to identify three symptoms of emotional unhealth. Here's the first symptom of emotional unhealth that we find in Saul's life. Covering brokenness, weakness, and failure. He saw had disobeyed God, but when he was confronted by Samuel, he says, I did do what God asked me to do. He denies his failures because Saul felt the pressure to have it all together. He was the first king. This is what he was called to do. And here he is being confronted by the man of God. And sometimes there's just this pressure in culture. And sometimes even in church. To present an image of ourselves as strong and spiritually together. To have it all together. And when we don't, we feel guilty and we don't, that we don't measure up or not for making the grade. And so we cover up, we push all of our brokenness and our failures and our mistakes under that 90%. We hide it from God and we hide it from one another. But nowhere in the Bible do we find perfect people, perfect leaders, perfect Followers of God. Let me give you a few examples. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter denied Jesus three times. Noah got drunk. Jonah was kind of a racist. Jacob lied. John Mark deserted Paul. 
Elijah burned out. Jeremiah was really depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Saul, we just found out, disobeyed God. David would go on to murder and commit adultery. The Bible is not telling that we should follow in the footsteps of these men. The Bible is telling us that through their stories that there is no one who is perfect, but all of us are weak and ultimately vulnerable and dependent on the grace and strength of God to carry out what he's called us to do. So we cannot cover up the failures, the brokenness. But we do what the Apostle Paul said. He says, in my weakness, he is made perfect. To be emotionally healthy means to know that in your weakness, God is made strong. But we do this all the time in culture. We do it even in church. We present a false self to God and to each other. We pretend that we have it all together. If we're asked how we're doing, we say we're blessed and highly favored. We present this version of ourselves. For what? Because we're covering up some things and we're afraid of exposing that to God or to each other. I had a conversation with a mentor of mine and he had been in ministry for over 40 years. And one of, my, uh, um, one of the struggles that I have in ministry, especially when I first stepped in and even to this day, is there's a lot of church leaders that I found and read their stories and once they get to a certain point in their ministry, they fall off the pedestal that they build for themselves. They have affairs with people or they mishandle church finances or they do something behind people's back. Whatever it may be, there are story after story of pastors failing to do what God has called them to do. And so I asked my mentor, how did you come out of this? I mean, you've done it for so long and you've done it well and there's nothing behind you. And I was expecting some profound like strategy and game plan that I can follow through on. And his answer shocked me and it almost made me a little unhappy. It didn't satisfy me initially, but now I understand. And here's what I said. Every single one of those men that failed or felt, he said, I'm one step away from making that same mistake. Being emotionally healthy and spiritually mature is understanding that all of us are one step away from making that mistake if it wasn't for the grace and strength of God that's active and working in our lives. It's not about pretending to be someone that we're not. David, who would commit adultery and murder, would record it in the Bible for us to see. And he says, what you require, God, is a broken heart. That's what pleases you. That's why Paul says, the power of Christ is made perfect in my weakness. We don't hear those messages oftentimes because we try to show everyone else the 10% above the surface. That's one of the first symptoms of emotional unhealth. We're going to keep looking at Saul's response. He says, I did do what God asked me to do. I did everything that you did. I went and destroyed the Amalekites. And then he says this in verse 21. The soldiers, they're the ones that took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He says, I did what you're supposed to, that it was the soldiers. Saul begins to engage in some BS, some blame shifting. <laughs> he starts to shift the blame to his soldiers. He says, I did what you're supposed to, but my men, here's this mighty military leader, but my men, they're the ones that took all that stuff. And then he begins to use his behavior 
He begins to use God to justify his behavior. And this is the second symptom of emotional unhealth is using God to run from God or to justify behavior. Notice what Saul said. He said, well, we kept all those things, God, because we were going to sacrifice them to you. It was all for you. That's why we kept them, because we were going to sacrifice them to you. Saul uses God to justify his behavior. He says, God, don't you want sacrifices? Isn't that what you seek? He was using God to cover up an insecurity that he had about his identity as the king. And when we're emotionally unhealthy, regardless of our giftings or the call of God over our lives, we begin to use God to justify our behaviors. There are many ways that we use God. I want to give you a couple more examples. We use God sometimes by taking Scripture out of context. Think about all the Christians that use Scripture to back up slavery. Think about all the Christians that use Scripture to back up holy wars. Or Pete gives an example of a churchgoer. The churchgoer's name is John. And John uses God to validate his strong opinions on issues ranging from the appropriate length of women's skirts in church to political candidates to gender roles to his inability to negotiate issues with fellow non-Christian managers at work. He does not listen to or check out the innumerable assumptions he makes about others. He quickly jumps to conclusions. His friends, his family, his co-workers find him unsafe and condescending. John then goes to convince himself he's only doing God's work by misapplying selected verses of Scripture. He says, of course they hate me. All those who desire to be godly will suffer persecution. And here's John using Scripture, using God to run from a deep flaw, a deep emotional flaw. There are other ways that we use God, especially in the church world, we use God sometimes with the language that we use. And we're going to go beneath the surface a little bit more right now. Sometimes we say things like, God told me to do this. Instead of, I think this is what God might be saying. There's a big difference between the two. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to us or tell us or call us to do certain things. There are times in my life where I was confident that God called me to do something. There are other times in my life that I was confident that God called me to do something, but I was way off. And what we do when we say God told me to is we distance ourselves from community because no one else can now speak into that. Because God told you, how can I speak into it? And we distance ourselves from accountability. But maybe, just maybe, sometimes we use language like that because there's something that we deeply desire to do or make a decision on, but because we're so insecure about making that decision on our own, we have to cover it up with the language of God by saying, God told me. When deep inside you just want to make a decision and you don't know how to do it securely. Sometimes we use other language. We say, I'll pray about it. Guys, if you're, dating a, if you're trying to date a girl and you ask her if she'll date you and she says, I'll pray about it, it means no. <laughs> That's what it means. Just break it to you. You ask someone to serve or do something or give something, you say, I'll pray about it, it probably means no. And I'm not saying that there's not people that actually pray about what they're saying. But sometimes, because of our emotional underdevelopment, sometimes because we don't know how to set boundaries with others or don't know how to handle conflict or don't know how to say no, instead of just saying no, we over-spiritualize it by saying, I'll pray about it. We use God sometimes. Maybe you're here this morning and you only find yourself drawing closer to God when you need something. 
when stuff hits the fan, when your business goes down, when your marriage is falling apart, when your kids aren't listening. We use God at times. We use God to cover up deep emotional flaws and our ability to handle life because we're emotional beings. It's the second symptom of emotional unhealth. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at what emotional health looks like. Today we're looking at Saul. Next week we're going to look at David and so on. But here's a third symptom. And what happens is Saul tells Samuel, he says, I did do what you wanted me to as the soldiers, and we were going to use all that to sacrifice to you, God. And look what Samuel says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Worship team, y'all can come on up as I get ready to wrap up. Here's a third symptom of emotional unhealth. Is our doing for God instead of being with God. Samuel says the sacrifice, the Christian activity that you thought was good, that's besides the point. God had called you to do something specifically. To obey is, to, is better than sacrifice. Sometimes it's easy for us to let the stuff that we do get in the way of our walk with God. There was a time where I felt like God was confronting me on this exact issue. When I first started this job about three years ago, I found myself and my prayer life being centered on anything and everything church, staff, ministry related. And so I would go on these morning walks with my dog and it's my prayer time and it's one of the best times of my day and I would go on these walks and every single thing that came to my mind or came out of my mouth was about church. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the question that I felt like God was asking me was what would happen if you did not have this job, did not have this position, did not have this church, what would it look like for you to have a conversation with me? What would you say? What would you talk about? What would you ask about? And I realized that I was so focused on doing for God that I had forsaken being with him. Just me and him and nothing else and no one else. The fallacy, the lie at times is that the doing for God, the going to church and listening to sermons and attending classes and serving and giving is enough. Sometimes even if they are good things, if they get in the way of being with God, they're no longer what's best for you. What would it look like for us to be with God? I love what Samuel said. I want to read that again. 1 Samuel 15, 22. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. That word heed is so essential for us to understand. It's an old school word. It means not just to hear something, but to make your ear attentive, to pay attention, to listen intently, and to follow through. To heed is better than the fat of rams, Saul. To listen to what God is saying is better than all the good stuff that you've produced for God. Every symptom that I've named, we make an assumption that God does not know us better than we know ourselves. The reality when you look at that iceberg is God knows not just the 10% but the 90% beneath the surface. Will we allow him 
to meet us there, to shape us there. And here's a challenge for the next eight weeks. There's two things that I'm inviting you to do. Number one, be honest about the false self that you portray at times. What are the symptoms of emotional underdevelopment? Be open and honest about it. Pete had a church member that told him after hearing about emotionally healthy spirituality, he said, I thought I've been a Christian for 22 years. But I've been a one-year-old Christian 22 times over. I never got beyond the stuff because I never allowed God to meet me beneath the surface. So number one, again, be honest about the false self that you might present at times to others and to God. And number two, be with God. Spend time with God. So over the next eight weeks, here's the challenge. I'm inviting our church, all of us, if you're not already doing this, to spend two times a day being with God in a contemplative setting. Church doesn't count. In a contemplative setting, you're sitting in silence before God and allowing him to meet you in the deeper parts of who you are, the hidden parts of who you are. You say, God, this is where I need to meet you. And I found that at times in my prayer life, I talk to God about my needs that day. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I never get to the stuff beneath the surface. So this week I challenged myself to go deeper beneath the surface, to the bottom of the iceberg. And I found myself praying a prayer from an emotional perspective and inviting God to meet me there. And I wrote it down. And here's a prayer that I prayed a few days ago. God, help me through your spirit to not overreact to a comment today. Help me through your spirit to not be frustrated with my kids. Help me to be prepared for the traffic that I'm going to sit in inevitably. Help me not to be quick to respond when my wife or my children or a friend makes a comment in their moment of weakness. Help me when my insecurity gets flared up as I browse social media. God, help me to find complete solace and peace and joy and fulfillment in you and nothing else but you. Help me to react in love and grace when others make, decision, make decisions that I disagree with. Help me to continue to love my neighbor that I always say hi to and they don't say hi back. Help me to allow you to meet me in the parts of my life that I don't often allow you to be. And God pointed out, he said, you're going to, encounter someone today, and I knew about this meeting, he said, you're going to encounter someone today that's going to throw you off. And he reminded me of that. And it's not today, it was like a few days ago, so no one at church today. But So I just prayed, God, help me, because I know this person or this group is going to bring up some past trauma or bring up some stuff that I thought I had dealt with. But every time I get around them, it comes out. I said, God, help me through your spirit to continue to love them. This is what it means for us twice a day to allow God to meet us 
in the raw moments. To allow the spiritual to meet the emotional. And if we can do this, it will be so transformative for us as individuals, for our families, and for us as a church. And I'm so passionate about this because this is what matters. This is what it's about. And I'll just say this. I read this article this past week about a pastor that quit ministry after 20 years, something like that, 20 years of ministry. And he wrote out an article and he listed seven reasons why he quit ministry. You had to have it all together. You had to be a CEO. You got to be a fundraiser. You got to meet with everyone. The pressure that comes with ministry. And he said, I'm just done with it. And one of the things that I love about Outer West and about our board is that they've given me freedom and our other pastors freedom to just say, we're not going to be the best person to do that for you. So some people will say, I need you to help me with the Greek and the Hebrew nuance and how to better understand the translations of the Bible. Some people will say, I need you to help me see how all the events happening around the world are pointing to the end times. Other people will say, I need you to help me learn deeper about scripture and how to study scripture. Here's what I'm going to release myself from. My job is not to help you primarily with any one of those things. In fact, I would say that there are people all across the world and maybe even in our city that can help you accomplish that and do that better. My job as a pastor of this church is to help you accomplish the greatest commandment that God has given us to love him and to love the people that he's placed around you better. To show kindness and grace and unity. To love your families well. Primarily that is it. And that's why I'm so passionate about this series because I want us to go beyond the 90. What's the point of pretending and just showing each other the 10% above the surface? The degree to which you are willing to give Jesus access to what is deeply beneath the surface in our lives is the degree to which we will experience freedom in him. And sometimes being with God is raw. And it feels raw. So I want us to practice that this morning. I'm going to ask the band to stop playing the music. Because sometimes the music makes my voice sound nice. All right? I sound better with the pads underneath. Sometimes it's this right here. It's awkward. It's raw. It's difficult. Sometimes there's thoughts that are bombarding you about the day. Or what you're going to eat later. Or how you're going to react to the Cowboys losing. There's just stuff in our life that always comes in, right? When we sit with God and we're silent with God. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to just sit in silence for a few minutes. And I want to invite you to get into a posture. Maybe you just sit up and maybe you can, I want to invite you to close your eyes. And here's what we're doing today and for the next eight weeks. We're going to invite God into the hidden parts of our lives. And so as we sit this morning, would you invite him to reveal the false self that you might portray to him or to others? And would you simply be with him?
God, I thank you that you know us, your people, better than we know ourselves. That we can try to hide the 90%, the stuff beneath the surface. But you formed us in our mother's womb. We thank you that you walk with us when we reveal ourselves to you. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning that are facing insecurities, that feel like they have to pretend, cover up their brokenness, their failures or their mistakes. They have to portray an image to the people around them or in their school or online. I pray, Lord, that they would invite you into the parts of them that they're trying to cover up out of fear of rejection, out of fear of failure, out of fear of not meeting the standards. Would you fulfill, Lord, and satisfy their deepest desires, God? Would they find their fulfillment in you? Lord, I pray for husbands and wives that have not allowed each other to see the 90%. Would they allow you to meet those areas of their their lives? Would you give them grace to walk with one another, to embrace, to carry the burden, to serve, to love one another through it? Lord, I pray that you would just strip away the spiritual activity sometimes, Lord, that make us believe that what we're doing for you is more important than our being with you. Would you help us to be with you, God? Would you help us to find moments where we simply say, come, Jesus. Help me with this meeting I'm about to go into. And I know I'm going to get emotional and insecure and afraid. feel like I can't live up to the standards of the people around me. Help me, God. Help me to find my joy and my fulfillment in you. Would you help us to bring you in to those areas of our lives daily as we allow you to shape us and form us? you knit together the emotional and spiritual parts of our lives so we can do what you call us to do. So in your precious name we pray. And the church said...